Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Excellent. Today, we're welcoming Max Sklar, who is a fellow podcast host. So he's going to school me on some techniques on how to interview people today. His, his podcast is called The Local Maximum. It's a little more technical than ours. He has stuff on... Um, Big Algo, Fat Tails, and Converging Priors was a previous episode. He's got episodes on Bayesian statistics and probability theory. So if you want to go deep, go go over there and, uh, and check out Max's podcast. But he's also a machine learning engineer, real thinker on AI and technology and how they've evolved. He's also done quite a bit of work with other tech companies and uh, has a, quite a long history in Foursquare that we're going to talk about a little bit today. So Max, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me on, Alan. I'm really excited to be on this show. And thanks for the kind words on my podcast. You know, I've been trying a lot of different things with the show over the years. So I, I would love to go back to that Fat Tales one, but we'll see. I think I think it's from 2018. Well, if you want me to listen, it has to be a little bit less about Bayesian statistics and, you know, a little bit more about cool stuff that ChatGPT. Yeah, I was obsessed with that at the time. I still am, kind of. I have a few issues where I'm obsessed with it. That's awesome. So we were talking just before we recorded here, your journey with Foursquare and so how you saw Foursquare play out, you know, and I think give us a little history there because I some of the younger people might not remember exactly Foursquare when it was really big and how that played out and how you see that being similar to today. Yeah, well, I can even give you like a pre-Foursquare kind of a, a little prehistory there because I remember when I graduated undergrad 2006 and that was a really different time for the internet. It was, you know, nowadays you see kind of first-time entrepreneurs trying to tackle events, recommendations, uh, coupons, that sort of thing. It's like, oh, wow, that's old news. But back then, that kind of stuff was everywhere. And I was always into maps and location data. And actually, my senior project as an undergrad, I built a website called Sticky Map, where people would, it's kind of inspired by Wikipedia, people would post little things all over the map, but it was pre-mobile. I wish I could have been advised on how to turn it into a business, because it, it could have been something. But it kind of led to my career at Foursquare, which was pretty great. And Foursquare was founded by a few people, including Dennis Crowley back in, I think, 2008. They had a precursor called Dodgeball before that, where people were kind of sharing with their friends where they were going by texting their app, which wasn't an app at the time, but they would use, you know, texting by number <laughs> and uh, try to figure out uh, where everyone is. And I think they discovered they can make a really good recommendation system out of it. They discovered they can make a really good game out of it. So when the iPhone came out, they came out with Foursquare, where people would check in on their app on their phone, and it would share with people where they are. And it was a very kind of social game, but it was social in a way where it kind of got you out of your basement, got you out of your desk, and actually got you into the real world, which is something that I really liked. So 
when I was in grad school at the time, I was studying machine learning, natural language processing. They had just come out with their place recommendation engine, which is like you search for something and you find restaurants and stuff. And that was a great thing for me to dive into because I had the map side and I had the statistical side. And so I loved it. And that's why I was there for so long. So talk a little bit about like where Foursquare has gone since that early. Because I mean, I remember in 08, you know, this is a year after the iPhone comes out, right? And kind of the birth of mobile and probably before the App Store or right when the App Store was coming out or something like that, right? At the time in 08, I was building software on the Palm Pilot, if you could believe it. So that was a long time ago. Although it's hard to believe that the Palm Pilot was probably still, there are probably still developers for that. I don't know. It's probably several years after that, right? Now it just seems so, you know, so impossible. But really, these, these smartphones kind of flipped everything and, and tablets. So Foursquare started as a social app and a social game. And so we kind of saw ourselves as kind of like Instagram or Facebook, or like, kind of like a mini Facebook even, kind of like a smaller group, but like still an exciting, powerful group, or maybe perhaps a, a Yelp or something like that. And then over time, the industry changed. And about in the middle of the decade, it sort of kind of became more of an enterprise data company where I think that the phrase that they used was location intelligence. So it was, um, and, and they still do that today, which is to sort of provide like one thing that was built there was the venue database, which is, it's not hard to build a table of, of venues, but it's really hard to keep it up to date and it's really hard to keep it accurate. Uh, and, and there's still lots of problems with that. Actually, it's funny, like the first time I, I showed sticky map to someone in 2005, I was like, look, you could create a marker and and they created something. I was like, no, 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 don't create that one. I already created it. And then it's like, oh, now there's a, a duplicate in the database. So data noise comes as soon as you introduce more than one person to a database is, is what I had learned from the very beginning. But yeah, so Foursquare had the venue database. It had probably burying the lead there is like, and I'm not going to go through you know, the whole marketing pitches, but you know, they have a an SDK where you can integrate into other apps and it says where people are visiting and when. And so that's kind of used to serve ads and all of that stuff. So it became more of an enterprise data company. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And do you see like an analogy to what's happening today? Like the, like what happened, you know, with Foursquare having to go pivot, you know, out of maybe consumer space into this enterprise space. Do you see something similar happening with companies today, maybe in the AI space or you think it's a different analogy there? The AI analogy is is interesting. I want to get back to that because I want to think about that. I just also want to first point out that like every social app and every even all big tech has to pivot at some point. I mean, look at Facebook. They're meta now. They're not even Facebook anymore. And as people get older, you know, these online communities change. And we have this tendency to kind of find something we really like, find a, a product we really like, and then we kind of want it to be that way forever. But it's not, you know, your tastes change and the people on, and especially if it's a social application, you know, the people on there change and then business demands change. It should come to no surprise, but like one of the things that drive the internet today is big data, basically trying to get as much information on people as possible so you could target them with ads. And it's sort of led to systems that don't feel as good as they used to 
feel anymore. I don't know. Is Google today as good as it was 10 years ago? Like Google was pretty good in, in 2014. Now it feels like there's more ads. There's different content on the web for sure. It's hard to measure that, that kind of thing. And Facebook, like, are you getting the same value out of Facebook as you used to? Peak Facebook might have been early 2010. Then again, that's just probably my experience as someone who came along at the same time as, as I did. But you know, all of these companies have to kind of keep expanding and a product sort of has a lifestyle, particularly a, a lifestyle, a life cycle. And sometimes they start getting saturated and old. And that's where you have kind of a creative destruction in the industry where something brand new comes along. And I think mobile carried that banner uh, sometime in the, in the 2010s. And I think now we've kind of have a double whammy even with uh, AI and generative AI and uh, and crypto so uh, and, and Web3 more generally. So those two categories are really kind of waiting in the wings to sort of change the paradigm that had existed in the 2010s. Yeah, and it seems like almost we've already seen the first AI app like with TikTok kind of take over kids, right? I mean, it has this extraordinary algorithm that addicts everybody to the next video. Well, I should point out, like, like all of these companies, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Foursquare, we've all been using machine learning and AI of some of the, the whole time. I went back to the uh, on on my show because I I read headlines a lot. I talk about articles, and I dug up an article that I talked about from the Wall Street Journal from like three years ago, which was like uh, I think it was AI breaks the writing barrier when they're talking about GPT, and I think that is the that's a good way to describe the tipping point. Whereas now, like we were trying to build chatbots in 2016, it kind of works. Whereas now, there's some sort of a switch that happened where a lot of things that weren't possible before are now possible thanks to like these natural interfaces that can talk to us more seamlessly. Exactly. So yeah, like back on the TikTok thing, I was thinking, you know, of course everyone's used AI and like Google's been doing predictive search and all that kind of stuff. But it really felt like TikTok did something different with that algorithm and it created like a much more viral, like by multiple times, it seemed like. It's just the impression. But what I was going to do is it kind of kind of contrasts that to now we're moving into this new thing, which is generative AI, or at least it's new to consumers getting access to it. And so obviously this is going to have some effects on society, social effects. So how do you think about generative AI and like what kind of impacts it might have? The way I've been thinking about it is this. It's something that I've said on other podcasts and my podcast, but I keep saying it because I feel like there's... I feel like someone is going to have a, a response to it that's that's really interesting, maybe some listener out here. And it's just like, you know, when I was maybe 10, 15 years ago when social media was coming along, people would say, okay, the world is very different now because now no matter who you are, you can create content. And maybe we could pick a word that's not as stale as content. You could create uh, a course. You could create, write an essay. You could make a video. You could do all sorts of things. You could do a podcast. It's available to the entire world. And so all those kind of barriers to entry are down. And it's like, well, if you have something to share with the world, how are you going to take advantage of that technology? And you know, that's one of the reasons why I started the, the Local Maximum podcast. And one of the reasons why I started a blog and one of the reasons I started writing. You know, it's a it's a very kind of nice feature of web and web 2.0. But now with generative AI, what's the story? I think the story is. You can create new worlds on the fly just by describing it, just by saying what you want, 
offering corrections. We're going to have like a total assist on our imaginations. And so how would you take advantage of that? And I feel like I almost want to think about that because I want lots of people to think about that because now your imagination is no longer limited to your head. You could you could have essays being created, images being created, videos pretty soon, 3D videos. And it's like, well, what does that mean for entertainment? What does that mean for business? What does that mean for education? I think we could guess a little bit, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I always thought like the, the where it hits home for me is like maybe I could remake the last season of Game of Thrones. And like make it actually good, you know, so it wouldn't be so disappointing. And yeah, and I, I do think you're, you know, look, I, I think at each phase of these of technology, it challenges current power and information distribution structures, just like the printing press challenged the authority of the Catholic Church or, you know, something like that. You know, you can go all, through any technology, this will challenge the fundamentals of, um, the prevailing ways we do things The, I think the Hollywood monopoly, the publishing music, um, idea generation monopoly. And, and I think we often kind of hear you saying the same thing. It's like, well, what is going to be the thing that distinguishes one thing from another in the future? And it's hard to say. Yeah. I want to come back to a question that you asked earlier, which is like, okay, I described what happened to social media, consolidated, got focused on monetization and ads. It feels like it's stagnated. Will the same thing happen with AI? Well, you always have those two phases, I think, working in tandem, where first is like the disruption and the decentralization and kind of the bottom-up creation. And then after that, you have the consolidation. What that consolidation looks like for AI, I'm not quite sure. So, uh, we'll see. I mean, maybe the main models will start off consolidated in big organizations, but it'll just be the the creation of new content that will just be all over the place. But then, of course, somebody has to come along and start centralizing that and consolidating that and sifting through that. And that's a big business model at first. Well, and I also think it's, you know, if we look at those cycles, right, they're mostly driven in a lot of ways by hardware constraints, right? And what you could say now, okay, the real constraint on AI that would make me think it would degrade and how you think about it is that is the um, processing power required, right? You need to be Microsoft or Google or somebody like that to own all the enough GPUs, to have all the servers, to actually make massive models work at scale, right? But that, that will change over time as new hardware innovations are made. And just like, you know, we went from having a massive punch card machine to like mini computer, to a personal computer, to mobile, to... In a couple of weeks, a, uh, you know, virtual reality headset. But um, do you see that like a lot of this is going to be driven by the hardware innovation that then allows these other use cases in the AI? Well, it seems like you can't eliminate the role of like a very well-capitalized group that is going to own their own hardware. And they're always going to go beyond what you can do as an individual, even if what you could do as an individual goes up entirely. But of course, individuals will also have access to open source models and the kind of the small guys, the, the individuals and small companies and whatever, will in aggregate have a lot more variety and maybe like search space to find something interesting than these big guys do. Yeah, and I think that's what's going to be really interesting because... You know, a lot of people talk about AI as a sustaining innovation, not a disruptive innovation. So Ben Thompson and Stratechery and some others. 
because it lends itself to the large player with lots of hardware and capital and kind of fits into their ecosystem of word and, you know, productivity software and things like that. But, and when you think about the analogy back to like another disruptive innovation, like the internet, and it wasn't like, I try to think about what's the analogy there. Like it wasn't the ISP that captured the value of the internet. It was like social networks. So, you know, like that kind of analogy, like what is that here? Like who's going to build something on top of this that basically makes everything else commodified and they own something on top of it. Right. It's unclear. It's in this last wave of internet companies, you saw a new kind of hundred billion trillion dollar companies uh, come up, whether it's Facebook or Google or, or Amazon. Of course, companies from the last wave like Apple and Microsoft are still are still huge. So when you're talking about like kind of sustaining, it doesn't necessarily mean that there'll be new huge companies to challenge the incumbents if the incumbents are kind of good at this. But look, you already have OpenAI, which is probably $100 billion company easily right now. NVIDIA is pushing their way around now. I mean, if you look at the stock movement, you'd think, well, there's a hardware company. You never really heard of them previously, even though they've been around for, for a long time. It's hard to predict where this is going to go. I'm not really kind of uh, an analyst on this sort of thing, even though now that you mentioned it, I probably should be because, you know, as an investor, you probably want to know. But, uh, you know, it, it could end up at the hardware this time, whereas previously, you know, well, I mean, I guess Apple with the hardware, uh, it did end, end up with them as well. And I'd be curious, you've talked a little bit about this and we've, you know, we spent a lot of time on our podcast because we do deal with government quite a bit, is like the regulatory aspects of this, right? And behind... I think a lot of that regulatory impetus is this sense that artificial intelligence is like the end of the species kind of thing, like the doom, the doom loop. So talk to us a little bit about your, you've talked a little bit about this on your podcast and writing about it. Is artificial intelligence the end of humanity or? Yeah. So there's two questions. There's uh Government regulation, and there's two themes here. There's, there's, there's regulation, then there's the end of humanity, which kind of, to me, are, are opposite different sides of the spectrum of what kind of discussion we're going to have. But so I'll start with the, uh, I'll start with regulation since that's kind of the more boring topic. But I kind of see regulation as, it's not necessarily a good thing, but it's, it, you know, it's kind of inevitable given the structure. Uh, uh, it, it's kind of an inevitable piece of the consolidation phase of a market. I noticed sometime around 2015, 2016, you know, the internet started getting regulated a lot more with GDPR and all that. And good thing or bad thing, it certainly made our jobs as software engineers a lot less fun, that's for sure. And, and it marked the end of focus on innovation, which seems to be what happened to other companies as well. And also, I mean, it doesn't mean I'm not, I'm not making some like broad quantitative argument. I'm just saying like from personal experience, you know, going through that in, in the industry. But part of it is not the regulation itself. Part of it is just the phase of the products, the phase of the internet, the phase of social, where you know, regulation is a part of it and kind of defending rather than expanding and sort of milking it for all it's worth for, for back, of, back of a better turn. But for the part that's out of, it's not just the phase, right, of the technology and the business, what, like from the regulatory standpoint, what made it not fun? What made it killing innovation? Okay. I think it's a very important point. Yeah. Well, it's just very simple. Like, so 
if you're at a, a medium-sized company or, or a big company, you uh, spend less time building more features or you know, doing research on usability or research on new products, and you spend more time trying to fulfill requests that uh, the lawyers are making, which they're making because you know they have to. If you're starting a new company, this is another hoop you have to dive through, and it's harder to compete because big companies are spending lots and lots of money to make sure that they are in compliance, whereas you don't you don't have that. So you kind of have to do it yourself, which is very difficult. Uh, and then that, in turn, can make the big companies not have to innovate as much either because now their competition is kind of kneecapped. So that's sort of what can happen. I mean, it, it depends on how it's set up and how bad the regulatory capture is. And again, I don't have like quantitative results here. So we've talked to several Europeans on this topic. And what really scares me this time is the phase at which they are regulating, which is almost at the beginning. And they don't even know how to define AI in order to regulate it, right? And we talked a lot about these, you know, they're using a risk-based approach. And, you know, my analogy was, well, what if you had Gmail? I mean, you could certainly pass nuclear bomb plans through Gmail, right? So it's risky, right? On some set of parameters, right? And then what if you had to go sit there in a regulatory box being, what does Gmail do? How does it work? You know, well, get, getting reviewed by regulators while Microsoft's furiously advocating for Hotmail and saying that Gmail is dangerous, right? You know, and I, I kind of feel like that's the world Europe wants to create. And it feels like that's what's going to happen. Now, I do think there's been a couple of like the Mistral model has has made france wake up and be like oh you know we have a national champion so all of a sudden we don't want to just steal money from american companies through regulation we can we got our own champion you know they've done some compromising but it just does feel like the regulatory time is not now and it's going to kill the, the space to some extent or at least push it into other corners where people are using open source I think there's a lot of opportunity to push into other corners because if you look at these regulations there or, or proposed regulations, I mean, I, I don't, I, I think I read the, the Biden like AI Bill of Rights or something. They're very like vague because it is too early. They don't really know what they're doing. And a lot of this is governments just kind of asserting, we still have the right to regulate this stuff, right? Just making sure you all know that and we are not to be crossed. But it seems more like they're going to be regulating the use of these systems in terms of making decisions for people and in terms of their use in large systems. It's hard to kind of tell people what to do if some of this stuff on kind of a smaller scale. I know it's kind of vague, but like I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. Maybe like architecture-wise, right? A lot of this is, is is kind of very technical, but a lot of the innovation here is in terms of how these neural networks are architected. So like the big breakthrough was transformers in 2018 that allowed uh, some breakthroughs in natural language processing that allows GPT to run as T is the transporter, uh, transformer. And so as we rearrange kind of the connections in these neural networks, this is really just the formulas. It's really just the mathematical formulas used to train these things of which there's kind of like a really large and complicated search space. I don't think you could really touch that. So like that innovation keeps going. I don't, and we're not like at the top of that yet. So that stuff's going to keep going. It's really just kind of the applications and the end result that ends up getting regulated, which is sort of like, okay, uh, there's already rules about like what you can and can't do on the web, for example. So 
maybe that's too vague. Maybe, you know, maybe I should maybe I should get more information. But I, I, th that's sort of my sense of it now. I hope they don't kill this stuff. Uh, and if they try to, then what's going to happen is all of the innovation is going to take place in an area that uh, doesn't care about any of this stuff, or companies that are maybe more willing to break the law, which we might be like, yay, they're getting around these onerous regulations, but they might be not as good actors. We did an interview with somebody in India, and they are taking a different hands-off approach. So good example of where innovation might shift to. But okay, so we talked a little bit about the regulatory side. Let's talk about the doom side. What's your perspective? I have always been skeptical of the, the doomer arguments, and I've tried really hard to sort of understands their arguments that's not in a way that is kind of like a, a, a straw man. To me, it just sounds so ridiculous. Like these calculations are just going to come out and, and destroy the world. How does that happen? Yeah, because I mean, it's, it is the fact that AI is basically data plus math and software, right? That's what it is. <laughs> it's basically like a really advanced form of Excel. I've heard two arguments that are interesting. One is that well, this stuff is doing calculations and the intelligence level is going to get so complex that we just can't predict what it will do. And so I say, okay, so 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 what's the problem? And then the argument there is that, well, it, it could be anything. We just don't have the imagination. To me, that's almost too much of like a doomsday cult, like you're taking it on face value. And so it's hard for me to it's hard to me to find something in that argument, but I don't think I don't think there's nothing there. I, I just have a hard time figuring out what to do with that one. The second one is okay. We don't even have to have super intelligence, but as we approach super intelligence, it's going to be a problem. Just take the idea that we have generative language, generative audio, video, images, all of that. You could create a model that's very good at convincing humans to do very stupid things or very destructive things. So to that, I say. I think the problems there is that there's always going to be some like some bad guy, some human or some organization who wishes us ill, who's going to go in and sort of create something like that. But so long as that person is not a monopoly, we will have something on the other side to protect against it. So I like to think of the arms race of information and misinformation and spam and, and non-spam. And it's always an arms race. You never get rid of the problem completely because it's adversarial, but the problem never quite destroys the host. And so I think that is the, uh, the area that we'll get into, or maybe the, the good side will overwhelm the bad. That's probably a, a better likelihood where it's like GPT, I could tell the way it's trained. They can probably put it into a lot of different modes. They could probably say one, like, and you can put it into a lot of different modes. If you kind of test it out, you could say, okay, speak rhetorically as if you are a politician from this political party. Speak as an extremist, speak as some, you know, and you could have it sort of change its its attitude. But when you say like, speak dispassionately about something and speak, try to give both sides, it will do that. And on the same scale, if you flip the coin, it should be able to detect incoming information that is trying to manipulate you. What I would like to see is sort of like more agents that act in your own self-interest. And it seems like we are having a hard time getting people to pay for that. People prefer like, you know, ad-based models or something where the incentive of the company is not necessarily to act in your best interest. But I think if things get bad enough, people will have to, will have to pay for something like that, where it's like, okay, all incoming messages 
we already do this. We filter for spam and stuff like that. But all incoming content that's being consumed sort of scan for threats, scan for someone that has kind of a hidden agenda. I think that would end up developing um, and should be developed, no matter even if it's not an existential. Yeah, I think this is a great point. Like, first of all, my expression has always been that the solve for problems with AI is more AI. And I go back to, I think, this GDPR discussion I had with the guy who's advising the German parliament on AI policy to where I gave him that Gmail example. And he said, well, we should have regulated Gmail because it's scanning your emails to serve you ads. And I'm like, yeah, but you could pay 10 bucks a month or whatever it was to not have it scanned and have everything that else that Gmail provides. But people don't want to do that. So like, if it's not worth $120 a year to you, I'm not really sure it's that big a problem, right? And I think we tend to get bent around the axle on these regulatory issues on things that might not really be a problem. You know, it's not, people don't love it that, you know, cookies are a little creepy, but whatever you, you like better ads, you could, you could probably get rid of these things if you pay for it and no one wants to. So show me the revealed preference there, right? Sometimes revealed preference is is a little frustrating. You know, I, I wish people cared more about privacy and I wish people cared more about, <laughs> for lack of a better word, sanity or like like aligning their interests with with the companies. But so far it hasn't been to the extent that I would like. But that just means that you have to fight for those things by either building better business models or trying to wait for the landscape to change. That's the only way it's going to work. The other thing I thought potentially is an analogy here is sort of like nuclear technology, right? Where at least at the high end where you would think the most danger would be, right? The most capable AI seems to require a tremendous amount of energy, capital, sophistication, money, blah, blah, blah. And it seems like that's relatively easier to control than some distributed thing that anyone can access. And of course, less capable models will be like that. But you'd think then that we'd be able to control the big ones that can contain the small ones. And it becomes sort of your spam war, right? They're always going to be doing stuff, but we're going to be able to stop them from ruining everything. Kind of feels like a similar, similar analogy. Yes. And it feels like the vague kind of AI that either goes out of control or is being used by harmful actors would it would probably be like in the context of a of like a an armed conflict uh, or something like that where you know you would have sort of enemy nations fighting and there'd be like a propaganda war and an information war and it sounds a lot like what we already have to be honest so <laughs> it's just on a higher level right exactly yeah exactly. yeah we can already destroy humanity several times over so this is just another way to do it right so tell us a little bit about your bayesian thinking bayesian logic and why it's such a, an important thing to you oh yeah so that is an idea that I really got into you know, when I was in grad school, when I was studying data mining and machine learning. And it's sort of what made probability theory click for me. And it's sort of what made the idea of AI click for me. There's a book that came out years ago. It's from Pedro Domingo. He's still online. He's an AI researcher or machine learning researcher. Uh, it was called The Master Algorithm. And he basically goes over like, oh, there are five different ways of describing artificial intelligence. That, that That's one of them. But really, Bayesian thinking is more of like a, but before you get into AI, it's more of a statistical way of thinking. And it's really related to the scientific method. It's just like, okay, 
you have a, a bunch of hypotheses and you have some sort of idea of how likely they are before you've seen data. That's your priors. Then your data comes in, just your probabilities. You now have your posteriors. I am going to update, I'm going to change my mind based on new data coming in. And it's just, that is the how you formulate it mathematically. And as it turns out, it's a great way to solve problems. Like if you're uh, even at work, I, I have kind of like a worksheet on Bayesian inference where it's like, okay, here are the steps to solving a really difficult problem at work. You know, you find your hypotheses, here's some strategies on that. Then you set up your models, here's some strategies on that. And it's also a great way to think about intelligence and science and, and a great way to think about epistemology, which is a big word, but it's like, you know, how do we know anything about the physical world? How do we know anything about the universe? Well, Bayesian inference uh, answers uh, a big part of that, which is just like, okay, we take our observations and we form opinions based on those observations. How would you uh, contrast it to typical decision-making that people do? I think... Most good decision-making is somewhat Bayesian on the bottom, but I think that people get into several error modes. First is like pre-Bayesian. Bayesian always thinks in terms of probability. So it's like, hey, here are my possibilities as to what the state of the world is, and here are the probabilities on that. But it is too difficult to think in terms of probability on everything. And so you really bring out the probability, which is kind of the, the idea of a probability distribution or like a probability cloud or an uncertainty cloud when this is like a hard problem to solve. Because otherwise, you know, it would drive you crazy. It would be too much in your brain at once. And even for machines, it could be computationally expensive. So really what we do is we end up having one, one state of the world. This is how I think the world is, and that's it. And I only, uh, when I run into problems, I start getting stressed out. And then eventually I have to update it. That one could be a little bit more painful, but I feel like that's what we do more often. Or there's kind of like the survival of the fittest where it's like, I am species A and here is species B. And one of us has one model of the world. Another has another model of the world. And the one who survives is right. Although right is, is kind of, a, they're not necessarily right in an, in an objective sense, just in a, in a survival sense. But in, in markets, those actually work pretty well. I think it doesn't work well in price discovery and things like that. Right. I relate it to, you know, it's just about being, it's the old, um, Bert, is it Russell, I think, who had the, the fox and the hedgehog, right? You know, and so it, it, it's about being the fox, continuously updating your opinions versus a hedgehog who knows one big thing, right, and never changes, so. Interesting analogy. So as we're wrapping up today, kind of curious from your perspective, you know, 2023, I think was the, the year of the AI breakout, right. You know, where, you know, I think people really saw this or the generative AI breakout, right. Where people really saw the possibilities of this technology and ChatGPT becoming, you know, the fastest adopted consumer product, all that kind of stuff. Any predictions for 24 and how you see the technology developing over the next year or to two years, kind of thing? I mean, first of all, I don't think the AI breakout takes just one year. So we are uh, we're still in it. We're going to be in it for a while. I think in 2023, there has been a lot of investment interest, investing in companies and in products that you could not build 
in 2019 or, or 2020 because the technology wasn't there yet. And I think a lot of investors have poured money across a lot of companies, many of which have been called out or will be called out because they're not really doing something interesting from it. So how long does it take for us to pull out the companies and the products that are really going to be transformative? I think that is going to take a few years. And I think that we are going to continue with like kind of the legal story. There was a whole question about how copyright works. And that's another question of kind of regulation. Like if I have a, um, you know, a diffusion model that makes an image and the image is, you know, has uh, Star Wars characters, can I then get sued by Disney? That's kind of problem. Or is it only if I then go like try to sell that as my own or something? I, I don't know. And so hopefully we're not going to get a perfect solution to that, but hopefully we get something reasonable. But a lot of those things are going to be fought out this year and, and in the coming years. And then along these lines, uh, which I think Generative AI has showed us this really can happen is the whole self-driving car industry, which is a really interesting one. I've been following that for a long time. It seems like there's been a lot of like over-promising. Elon Musk is always saying we're two years away, but they really do make concrete steps of progress every year. And so it's sort of like we're kind of waiting around to see where the tipping point is. But I think generative, I think the breakthroughs in generative AI shows us that there will be a tipping point. Self-driving cars already work. I, I think it's just can be improved a little bit. And then it's the whole regulatory thing. I don't think the breakout year is 24, but I think 24, there'll be a few more steps. Maybe Waymo will come out in a few more cities and it's taking its time, but it, it is a very big deal for like life in America, for example, akin to like the the automobile being ubiquitous uh, in, in the 50s. So I can't wait for that. Oh, yeah. I love driving, but it's like sometimes you got to drive long distances and then you get tired and then it's like it's kind of dangerous. Yeah, sometimes it can't come soon enough. Well, you also got to think like I was reading something the other day that it kind of almost wipes out the case for any kind of high-speed rail at a certain point, right? If you could get every car on the highway self-driving, then you can up the speed of the cars. And now you've basically eliminated the need for any trains or anything like that. So kind of interesting perspective. That's interesting. I mean, I take a lot of trains as well. I, they are very efficient, but the problem is they don't always get you to where you need to go. That's right. The other thing we heard at our last couple of interviews, I thought was really interesting is like, it's also like going to be the year of the change of potentially the, the UI UX for generative AI where it's going to start getting embedded into the things that people use day to day, namely productivity software, but then also much, much more, you know, a lot of models are now running on, on smartphones and it's going to become a different way of interacting instead of going to chat GPT dot open AI dot whatever, you know, and I think that's going to increase the adoption of it from into day to day life a lot more. Sure. Yeah. That Reminds me of like, and this is going around Twitter. I think it was true. It was like some uh, car dealership hooked up OpenAI to their homepage. And, and it was like, what car would you like today? And then people would say, why don't you solve me these differential equations? And it would be sure thing. Here we, here you go. And then someone else said, I want you to promise me you'll sell this car to me for a dollar. I mean, one of the frustrating things is always talking to machines. And it's like, if we put these things out front and center, can they then understand our complex problems 
more easily? I mean, I hope so. I hope it doesn't get to be just like a very, an excuse to just make customer service even worse. So I'm worried about it. There's reason we might be optimistic. We'll have to see. Well, excellent on that. Now we will conclude, but thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks. I look forward to seeing this come out and uh, I had a good time today. Thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. See you soon. AI Government and the Future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, Thanks for listening.